Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that looks at politics across the UK and also Kent. I'm constantly turning Duyeb, and this week US President and the leftover contents of Buffalo Bill's wardrobe, Donald Trump, is revealed to only have paid $750 in federal income taxes in his first year of office. I think it's great that he's finally in tune with global opinion by showing that even he doesn't think his salary is worth taxpayers' money. I'll pay more in tax than the US President, and I've barely done any work this year, though arguably neither is he. Trump's tax records show that he didn't pay any tax at all for 10 of the last 15 years, and there are many claims for massive losses, surprisingly none of which were cognitive. One claim was for over $70,000 for hairstyling, but I guess HR Geiger probably would charge that much for such a creation. I joke, we all know that was probably the cost of paying for the silence of hairdressers that he's tried to grope. Many hope that this will be Trump's Al Capone-style downfall for tax evasion, which is really unfair to Capone, who is actually a successful businessman. Sadly, reality is Trump supporters will likely just see this as another win by Donald, justifying it by saying, hey, he's scamming the system and taking down the man, not realising that he is that very same man. These are the same people that if you rang them up and told them there was someone in their house, they'd burn the place down and fire bullets everywhere to stop the intruders before realising you meant it's them because they were home when you called. Trump is, of course, calling this fake news a weak defence when he could have been clever and said that actually he's just decimated so many necessary public services that what he did pay just about covers the few that he's not yet realised are still there. I'm sure that the Democratic candidate and someone playing themselves but old in a film and they've overdone the latex makeup, Joe Biden, will use this story wisely in the presidential debates this week by saying something about how he'd return the tax system back to normal so more billionaires could get away with this sort of shit, before mumbling something incoherent and staring into space while Trump walks around in circles like a confused chicken. Trump has demanded Biden take a drugs test before the debate as he says his opponent's performances have been uneven. Personally, I think both should get off their tits on acid and then it might be more interesting than watching what will essentially be an evening of televised palliative care. Biden is currently ahead in all the polls, but after the sad death of Supreme Court Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg last week, a woman so defiant in fighting for justice that I wouldn't be surprised if she passed away 40 days before the election just to haunt the GOP, it's looking like Trump may be forcing through his nomination for her replacement, Amy Coney Barrett. 
Looking like if Laura Dern had been turned into a White Walker, Coney Barrett is an ultra-conservative. So even if Biden wins, if the Supreme Court ends up looking like a prequel for Gilead, then America is still in trouble. It's like Trump in his politically dying days has shouted an incantation and released a really vicious curse upon the country. Hopefully for Biden's sake it won't affect anyone who's already dead. Back in the UK, our government have been looking to the future and realising that with most young people unlikely to ever vote for them, it's best that they're just all imprisoned indefinitely. I joke, but only slightly, as university students are being made to self-isolate in their rooms, meaning that this generation will be the first to not remember their freshers' week simply because every day was exactly the fucking same. Only a couple of months ago, during the A-level results scandal, we were all criticising Education Secretary and gingivitis personified Gavin Williamson for denying pupils their deserved grades. But now perhaps it seems as though actually it was his attempt to fail them all so they could be free in the autumn. Is Williamson the misunderstood vitamin deficient and tonally flat Captain Von Trapp of our era? Have we been wrong in assuming that the Department of Education have been letting down young people all along when actually we've been misinterpreting their warnings? Perhaps this is why Williamson hasn't been seen or heard from through any of this fiasco, as maybe he locked himself indoors in solidarity. Culture Secretary and man with all the impetus of a half-hearted fart on a wet day, Oliver Dowden, is now insisting that students should not give up a year of their life by not going. But hey, maybe that's a hint that by staying in their rooms indefinitely, students may be the only ones to survive the rest of the year. Of course, it's more likely that Williamson has decided to up his stand against universities no-platforming people by showing them how damaging it is when someone with opinions as shit as his fail to turn up anywhere. This would fit with all the new guidelines sent to schools in England from the Department of Education, saying that in PSHE lessons, teachers mustn't use anti-capitalist materials. So that's no Dickens, no Shakespeare, no Robin Hood, and children fed entirely on a literary diet of criminal scrotum Geoffrey Archer and lobotomised moorhen Nadine Dorries. I know that PSHE isn't actually about reading and books, but there would be nothing like torture to force an adverse opinion, and I reckon it'd only be two to three sentences of Dory's really horrible writing, like an AI machine transcribed what it thought it'd feel like to shit itself, before the younger generation instantly became avidly socialist. Any sort of system that allows those talentless husks to get book deals can only be very, very wrong. It's also possible that Gavin Williamson hasn't been seen as he tried to use an algorithm to open a door and has been stuck in a room for six days as a result of it using vague evidence to decide that in the past three years it was push not pull. That's why Dowden is on the case, insisting that young people have paid a price during this crisis and he thinks it's only fair to try and get them back. I think he meant to university, but there's also every chance he was just voicing out aloud the government's ethos of punishing those who dared to still have any sense of hope despite everything they've been through, which just isn't very British at all, is it? Getting Dowden, the culture secretary, to defend universities is like asking him to play piano in a band when he clearly thinks music just plays itself like a magical force that requires no financial sustaining whatsoever. Yes, the hospitality sector has once again been largely ignored by all the new economic plans, possibly because the last thing the government wants is for this country to appear hospitable. The Chancellor and poor attempt at a toilet roll puppet, Rishi Sunak, said he was looking at creative imaginative measures to support workers, but if he actually understood what those words meant, he wouldn't have ignored all jobs where people understand that thinking outside of the box doesn't just mean occasionally popping your head above your open plan cubicle and telling everyone you might go wild and have a fanta. Instead, Sunak's stretch of the mind is that people only have to do a third of their working hours and the government will top that up, sounding like it's based on the Prime Minister's own current personal job arrangement. Well, except this is only two-thirds of pay, and it's only for people in viable jobs, whatever that means in 2020. 
The word viable actually means capable of working successfully, so perhaps that's why we haven't seen Gavin Williamson anywhere. Just days before, the Prime Minister, and like someone force-pushed a loudhailer into a moth-eaten sofa, Boris Johnson, said in his statement addressing the rise in infections that we are all going to have to pull together. Yeah, sure, mate, as everyone kissing will definitely stop a virus transmitting. The message was that the government succeeded in beating the coronavirus in March. You know, in the way that 40,000 people dying and the virus still bouncing around till its full comeback now is somehow a success. Boris would probably insist that this was the case as long as Covid left just one person standing so he could tell them to get back to work. But now Johnson says the greatest single weapon against Covid is the common sense of the British people, which is why we'll still be ravaged with the virus until 2023 as anti-mask conspiracists shout hoax through their violent coughing fits. The British people who, when asked why other countries have better testing facilities and a lower death toll than us, Johnson said it's because we were all too freedom-loving. Is that right? Are we a country that believes the only true freedom exists in death? Or is freedom-loving the new term for being disobedient, arrogant, selfish pricks? Shall I start telling my daughter she's just too freedom-loving when she tries to go down the slide while another kid's still on it? We've potentially got another six months of this shit, and if you don't obey the restrictions, then apparently, according to the Prime Minister, the army may need to be brought in. Though at least it would be good for reducing carbon emissions if our armed forces are only going to oppress this country instead of travelling abroad to ruin someone else's. A slaycation, if you will. That's the message, though, that if we don't sort things out, then threats, and if we do, great days ahead, although by that, Johnson may have just meant that they'll all feel really, really long. A stitch in nine saves time was his new slogan that he repeated throughout the week, a ripe phrase from a man who's potentially double digits of kids due to a lack of planning. Yet, as is always the case, the Prime Minister's rallying cry for us to comply was diminished by Sunak explaining that actually we're going to have to live with the virus, which, based on how little financial support there's going to be and the current housing situation, is probably an indication of how things will be for flat share renting from now on. The furlough can't go on forever, said Rishi, and he's right because forever is infinity and nothing will last that long. However, it'd be really helpful if it at least lasted during the pandemic. As it is, the Winter Economy Plan, or WEP, something that neither Cardi B or anyone else could get that excited about, isn't going to stop mass unemployment, but more will just allow Rishi Sunak to say he's doing something to help the British people, even though it's nowhere near enough. Like how if you were hanging off a cliff edge, he'd insist he was being a hero by trying to flick crisps into your mouth for his own amusement while refusing to pull you up as that would just be unrealistic. If you're self-employed, you get a whopping 20% of your profits to survive for three months on. Apparently, that's in line with all other job support that's been announced. It's just sad that the line in question is a firing one. Millions of people still have absolutely no financial help. So many industries are going to collapse. Most families will be worse off. And you have to wonder, with the Chancellor announcing this in the autumn, if it's only called a winter economy plan because its contents were so bleak. The UK must live without fear, said Sunak, as if that's yet another thing the government only fund when it's for the benefit of their friends. It's not hard to understand the feelings behind thousands of people who took to the anti-mask protest in London on Saturday, an event where people gathered to say that they felt oppressed by having to pop some cloth on their face, even though really only bank robbers have been oppressed by these measures as they've now lost the element of surprise because everyone's doing it. The demonstration was called We Do Not Consent and then was shut down by police for not complying with the risk assessment criteria in an outcome absolutely no one could ever have predicted. I mean, if anything, the police waiting till 3pm in the afternoon to shut it down just seems a bit cruel. 
As I say, though, I do understand them being angry. Not at wearing masks, that bit makes sense. And you do have to differentiate between the rules that are sensible and those that are hypocritical. I mean, if alongside giving millions of pounds of contracts to their pals, the government also begrudgingly told people not to put toasters in the bath, I wouldn't think, well, to fight the system, I'd better get the matey and some warbitons at the ready. But it's definitely okay for them to have lots of anger towards being told to follow weird rules that now include a ban on casual sex, though no guidance on if it's okay if you only refer to it as business time or grouse hunting. Pubs and restaurants now have to close at 10pm because after that time you can't see Covid as easily in the dark or something. Apparently there is a science behind a 10pm curfew as ministers say it's something to do with people not obeying social distancing as well when drunk, something that clearly won't be the case if you make the law to drink heavily in the daytime instead. There is a ban on household mixing in Leeds, so no homemade cocktails or DJ practice for them. Meanwhile, chauffeur-driven cars are exempt from restrictions forcing passengers to wear masks, something that seems so clearly one rule for the elite, another for us. Except I'd argue it's also the best way to take out those people if we can just willingly get the drivers to consent to catching Covid for the sake of the country. Until it was highlighted in the press and they sheepishly changed it, the bar in Parliament was allowed to stay open past 10pm, but then I guess they did have a duty to keep a plastered Boris Johnson from spilling out onto the streets the same time as everyone else and shaking all of their hands. An iced bun left out in the rain, the Queen, is to receive a government bailout of £35 million, proving that actually furlough can go on forever. Double standards are rife, but there is hope, right? There is hope that this Wednesday, coronavirus legislation is up for its six-month review and the Brady Amendment is being voted on. Its name is as in proposed by MP and entirely teeth Graham Brady. Not because it requires all legislation to be delivered over Zoom so that everyone looks like they're in the intro to the classic US sitcom. This amendment would mean all further legislation has to get parliamentary approval and enough Tories seem to be rebelling to make sure it happens, stopping a further rushing through of government policies. Fingers crossed they do, as it'd be nice to know even MPs don't feel the government's jobs are viable right now. The government has said that lorry drivers will need a permit to enter Kent after the Brexit transition period is over, and what's truly sad about that is that Kent is the only area of the country that actually has a deal. On the plus side though, with an internal border, I look forward to, oh no, someone left the heating on in the Waxworks Chamber of Horrors, Nigel Farage, being told he's illegally invading England every time he tries to drive down the M2. Brexit talks are resuming this week, with recently removed from the side of a ship, Michael Gove, heading to Brussels, possibly because the UK misunderstood the EU's request to remove its contentious parts. Gove has said the sections of the Internal Market Bill, which may breach international law, will stay there, despite the EU wanting to remove them, because trust two-faced Gove to be all about things remaining when it suits him. At the end of the Labour Party conference, Labour leader and man that always looks like he's being attacked from above, Keir Starmer, stood at a podium in a corridor as though he was going to try and fly people as they left a speech they actually wanted to be at. Starmer said Labour must get serious about winning before saying the next manifesto won't sound like anything you've heard before. Mate, it's politics, not a battle of the bands. There was a lot of forced patriotism where Starmer said he wants this to be the best country to grow up in and the best country to grow old in, which will just as likely alienate all the Conservative voters who are already old and don't want things to be better for anyone else. While Starmer was banging on about winning, Labour MPs, well except for 18 of them, abstained from the vote on passing the Overseas Operations Act to its third reading. That's not winning, that's just not bothering. The Act is legislation to protect armed forces serving on missions in other countries should they be doing awful illegal shit, because you know this government are big fans of breaching international laws. Labour said they'd fight to protect our armed forces, but then abstained on the vote, so it's like fighting for someone by not turning up and letting them get illegally tortured, or more likely doing it to someone else. 
With the Labour conference over, the Lib Dem conference is this weekend, and I'm not really sure why. Leader and ceramic troll Ed Davey has said that his party vows to be the voice for carers, which feels really unfair as now they'll definitely, definitely be ignored. In other news, in a roundtable discussion at the UN, Boris Johnson said the UK can be the Saudi Arabia of wind power, which I think means he's going to continue to oppress people with his endless flatulence. Earwax syringing is no longer free on the NHS and the government wonder why people won't listen to them anymore. And rumours have it that former Daily Mail editor and racist frown Paul Dacra could be appointed as head of Ofcom, while former Telegraph editor and man who always looks like the last photo of someone before they mysteriously disappeared, Charles Moore, could be appointed chair of the BBC. Moore is an avid hater of the Beeb and has also spent a lifetime writing stupid as fuck articles such as Why are nurses always so fat? So in a way he should really be aiming for chair of Channel 5. You might be surprised to hear, actually, that I think mega-bigot Dacra could be quite good for Ofcom. I mean, he's so full of hatred and terrible ideas that all his staff would have to do is see if he likes a TV show, and if he does, it's probably breached guidelines. Labour MP for Leicester East, Claudia Webb, the least impressive character in the Spider-Verse, has been charged with harassing a woman and is due to appear in court in November. Fair play to Labour, though. At least they've diversified the Commons by having female MPs who might be harassers. I bet she's gutted she's not a Conservative, or they'd have refused to say her name, and she'd just have had to stand down from being chair of the ERG and absolutely nothing else. Lastly, actor, man that's still bitter fathers for justice is no longer a thing, and oh, it's so sad that Tim Blake Nelson looks so, so terminally unwell. Lawrence Fox is setting up his own political party that he's describing as the UKIP of culture, which is a bit like describing it as the Kanye West of mild-mannered restraint, which Lawrence Fox wouldn't do as Kanye is black, and he'd prefer to find a white person who he thinks had been silenced to shout out about instead, such as, um, let me check, uh, Lawrence Fox, apparently. The party is going to be called Reclaim, such as when you've tried to leave something unwanted at the airport, but they make you come and get it because it's causing distress to other passengers. Personally, I think a better name would have been The Independent Group for Whinge, or perhaps just Lawrence First. Hey, 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 Parpol Brods. Um, I was going to talk about lots of things in this admin bit today, but I've just discovered that the racist group, the Proud Boys, um, because of course they're proud. It's always dickheads that are proud, isn't it? Anyone that's actually good, you ask them, like, oh, if they're proud of themselves, always be like, no, I'm a bit probably a bit ashamed uh, just think about all the terrible things they've done rather than a few good things it's always dickheads who have done lots of terrible things but seem to enjoy it that are really proud uh, just uh, something I noticed there anyway the Proud Boys they all wear a type of Fred Perry shirt that I own and really love it's like black with sort of yellow stripes on the collar um, it's like my favourite shirt I've got it in all my comedy promo pictures that now suddenly look like Nazi propaganda pictures. Is there anything that Nazis don't ruin aside from maybe ruining things? I mean, they're constantly good at that. They constantly fucking ruin things. But I know far-right nationalists are doing far more dangerous things right now. And it is nothing but privilege for me to just be so annoyed about this compared to, you know, racial violence uh, and terrifying uh, supremacist uprisings. But damn, I love that shirt. I properly loved it. I wore it to loads of gigs. It was my sort of smart but casual shirt. Do you think I can still wear it if I write I'm not very proud at all, actually, on it in fabric pen? Um, Or maybe, as someone suggested online, that I just write ashamed or I wear it with a rainbow scarf with a big Black Lives Matter badge. Something. There's got to be a way to to reclaim it from the dickheads. Uh, It's been very much a week of failed action for me. Not only has my favourite shirt been appropriated by fascists, but I also wrote a letter to my MP complaining that basically all the new government measures for self-employed people are telling the entertainment industry to go do one and he sent back his usual automated response that said yes but we are supporting some people so that might placate me hey you should be happy you can't afford to pay your rent because we've made sure that estate agents can 
No, if anything, that's made it worse. At least my and other comedians' jobs is to make people laugh. Estate agent's the exact opposite of that. The exact opposite. The bottom of his email uh, said that he'd take up any anomalies with the Chancellor on my behalf. It's an anomaly. Calling me an anomaly, mate. I suppose it is an anomaly for him that someone could do a job with the purpose of cheering people up. Probably completely unheard of for an arsehole like him. Anyway, I hope you're less annoyed than me this week. Though if you're a student trapped in your dorms, um, then my heart goes out to you. I've got no idea um, if there's any way I can help. Uh, I I keep looking at it on the news and thinking, is there a way I can send you things? There must be something we can do. Um, Get in touch if I can, if you are one of them and I can, or you've got a kid uh, who's a student and and they're in trouble, let me know. Um, If you want to drop me a line or you want me to call you, we can record a quick chat about how you're getting on and how people can help. I'll happily pop it on next week's show. Um, While my liver would have been very very grateful for me being stuck indoors uh, for my freshers week can't imagine it's how any of you wanted to spend your first few weeks of higher education um still i suppose if any of you are studying politics degrees this is a pretty full-on intro to it isn't it don't know how the conservatives think this is going to get them any younger voters at all but then again they are a whole party full of people whose families paid thousands of pounds to not see them so maybe they're trying to sort of fabricate a similar anger like a kind of sith lord training program uh, but yeah uh, do get in touch if you want to even if it's just to say where listeners could send you some beers or snacks uh, to help you survive um, and honestly thoughts are with you all um so here we are this is the state of things once again i'm very pleased that you're here to indulge in my general audio screaming and a mega thank you this week to Rhiannon for joining the Patreon, Claire, Anne-Marie and Helen for the Kofi, and Al for the ACAR support donation. Uh, should you want to help me out, as yes, self-employed support from the government is now just 20% of profits for three months. You've got to live on three months of 20% of profits, which is basically, I mean, nothing. And I'm excited to tell my landlord that I can only pay 20% of rent uh, until March next year. Um, but if you enjoy the show and fancy at least buying me a coffee so it won't be as cold when I'm living outdoors, then please do that at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro, the uh, Kofi, ko-com forward slash Parpol Bro, or via the ACAS support button. And speaking of which, I still don't do any extras on the Kofi or Patreon, and time-wise, I'm not really sure I can because, well, life. But if I did pop some bonus content on there, is there anything you're crying out for? What might make it feel worth it for you to join? Because um, I, I realise I'm being a very lazy Patreon person. Some people out there are like, bonus episodes and bonus chats and all these send you badges, and I've basically gone, just give me money and I'll, you know, be grateful here and there. Um, but let me know if there is something you be really want from this show, uh, and I'll definitely try it, especially as it's like it may be my only income stream until spring. Obviously, if you can't donate, then you don't have to. It just means that we won't be friends ever. Sorry, I mean, you can instead give the show a lovely review like 773 Addict did on Apple Podcasts. Um, thank you tons for your very kind words. And I hope you're getting help with that addiction to 773 different substances, as that sounds pretty full on. Although at the same time, probably the only way to survive current times. Um, you can also review the show on CastBox, Stitcher and on Acast too. Um, I think so. Please do that. But mainly, any spreading of the word that you like this super show is very much appreciated uh, right that's it for this week no admin or anything else to promote though any suggestions for a new t-shirt that isn't nazi affiliated would be very welcome so instead on this week's podcast i'm speaking to behavioral scientist dr andrew marchinko all about just why oh why do people do that um plus a small guide to a handful of shitty things that you may have missed yes there's even more shitty things than all the shitty things you know about what? This is meant to be a comedy podcast. <laughs> oh dear. Oh well. As Icelandic glitch in the pop matrix Bjork sang so, so long ago, there's definitely, definitely no logic to human behaviour. Something like that. Sort of sang it a bit like that.
<laughs> I've often thought this over the years um, as I've gigged to unplayable Christmas work dues, walked past Big Market in Newcastle on a Friday night, or just seen anyone that's willingly chosen to wear red trousers. During this pandemic, you could be excused for wondering just why, as we've all been told there is a crew of tiny germs wrecking havoc across the world, some people thought, ah, it's probably best to head to the beach then, or have an illegal rave, or drive to Durham because the possibility of having to do childcare, despite a lifetime of privilege, was worth breaking the law for. The thing is, though, is that being told that you have to deal with a global pandemic and it's up to your common sense, that's quite a lot of responsibility for your average Joe, let alone an idiot like me that struggles to remember to be responsible for not burning toast of a morning. So are we expected to behave in any way at all when government guidelines have been so vague and contradictory that one minute you're at a restaurant for the sake of the country and the next it's illegal to mingle because it's your fault that you listened and ate out to help out? To top it all off, it can't be easy to obey guidance from people who've been breaking the rules themselves. In the same way, you wouldn't want advice on driving while eating potatoes from Brian Harvey or any advice on anything at all from Denise Welch. We're in extreme times and so maybe it makes perfect sense that extreme behaviour stems from that and we shouldn't at all be surprised at the embracing of conspiracy theories, aggressively divisive politics or like the arsehole on my road, the understanding that it's been fine since March to park your shitty broken van across three parking spaces at once, meaning the rest of us have to park bloody miles away. Maybe I should offer him a baked potato and hope for the best. How do we react when we're told to bear the burden of our times but then get the blame for not bearing it properly? And how easily could we, as human beings, see through double standards but also bullshit gestures and unfair policies? Because I really might try this baked potato thing so I need to know pretty fast. This week I spoke to Dr Andrew Marchinko, a behavioural scientist who teaches at the University of Durham and specialises in looking at the areas of organisational authenticity, diversity and inclusion, leadership and trust. You know, all the things that are currently missing from British government. So I thought he'd be the ideal person for someone like myself, a total noob in behavioural science, to ask some questions about, well, all of us and everything that's going on. Andrew very kindly spared the time to talk me through the importance of practising what you preach, whether our ability to identify as part of a group has changed, and whether anyone will get a pop culture reference about Brian Harvey from 2005 or not. OK, not the last one. I should say that I spoke to Andrew last week before students got locked up in their dorms, otherwise I definitely would have asked him about that being he's a university lecturer. So if you're thinking, why didn't you mention it? It's because I'm not a psychic. I hope that's a reasonable excuse. Anyway, I found talking to Andrew hugely insightful and I'm very sad that I didn't ask him even more stuff. I do hope you enjoy. Here is Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Thank you so much for speaking with me uh, today. Um, I feel like a lot of these questions are very selfish um, to just kind of work out how I'm feeling about all of this, uh, speaking to an expert such as yourself uh, in behavioural psychology. Um, but I think one of the areas I wanted to start with, um, because as I said, personally, I feel quite vilified by this. But what effect does, uh, you know, putting the responsibility of something as major as a pandemic on people do like how does that affect people's behavior and and you know does it kind of give everyone uh, a sense of panic or does it kind of cause a hey let's all unite together and 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 do this what does you know it's a lot of responsibility to suddenly go this is up to you now yeah sure i mean so if i think back my background is in organizational psychology and, and people do as a general rule like having autonomy so when we look at research on like ethical and safety violations in, in companies, empowering individual individuals to have the responsibility actually works pretty well. However, with things like you know climate change or the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, you're asking people inherently to make a sacrifice as part of that autonomy and empowerment, which changes changes the game a little bit. 
and, and particularly brings in these ideas of like fairness and justice. So if, if people perceive that the sacrifice they're being asked to make is is unfair compared to their neighbor or compared to their elected officials, they're they're going to be much less willing to do it. You know, I, I take myself for an example, thinking of climate change. I, I would be really willing to use a pay a little bit more money to have a green, you know, solar powered energy, you know, provider, let's say. I would probably be less willing to do that if my neighbor saved all that money, got dirty energy and used it to buy an awesome car, which they left in the driveway every day to, to taunt me, you know? So yes, people are willing to, to take that responsibility and sacrifice, but much less so when there's that sacrifice involved and other people don't make it. Is is there a sense of, I mean, you talk about fairness as well, but like, and again, I'm being very selfish here, but my big thing is, people are elected to be in charge of this why do i have to do it you know especially when it comes to a pandemic where something i have no clue about i don't have medical history and suddenly now it's saying it's up to you to protect everyone i feel a bit oh is it why i've got no experience in this you know is there does that kind of sense of fairness come in or um you know do, do, do people and is there a feeling that if you've kind of put someone in charge of something, having everything delegated back to you, does that affect how people feel about fairness and, and justness? I, I mean, it would probably be better if there was consistency in the approach because it it seems like the government's in charge when things are going well. And then when something doesn't work, it's the people's <laughs> responsibility. So I I'm, you know, I, I'm American. I, I come from this, you know, land of the free sort of thing. So there's this, this innate sort of thing, value for sort of giving the power to the people in some senses. But the government can't have it both ways where they take the credit when things go well. And then they sort of uh, blame the people when things are going poorly. Yeah, I mean, which brings me to the next bit. I mean, you know, we've had in the past couple of weeks, the government have now blamed it on young people. And now they're blaming it on people who want to get tests when they shouldn't be wanting to get tests, even though they're told to get tested. And, and uh you know what does that do to groups if if everyone's being blamed for because we we were given the responsibility and now we're being blamed for it not going well and that's as you mentioned very mixed messages but that must have an effect on general uh, i don't know morale i think societal morale yeah uh i, I can tell i'm getting older because i i my first thought was oh they're blaming me for this and i, I realized they're probably not <laughs> I'm, I'm probably not <laughs> I've been in the same boat. It's all right. Yeah. When when the curfew for 10 p.m. came in, I was like, that's fine. I'll be. Yeah, I'll be it's, anyway. it's probably yeah. not me they're, they're upset with anymore. But uh, <laughs> you, you probably you don't really you know need a behavioral scientist for this one. It's, it's pretty common sense. Right. So we heard from like the, the sage advisors over and over again that sort of developing this collective mentality, this, you know, we're all in it together it's going to be beneficial in this sort of situation. Obviously, the government knows that. If you think back to the early days, you know, it was do it for the NHS and we're all in this together. And it's sort of those wartime metaphors and stuff. And that it works. It's common sense. But going back to what I'm saying, if they sort of, if you deviate from that, if you take credit as this collective endeavor every time something goes well, but then don't take any of the blame when something doesn't go right and put all that on the individuals, that inconsistency, that hypocrisy throws off the game. So yeah, you, you definitely should be trying to build up that, that we, you know, that we language using the, the collective language to build that collective identity. But you can't just drop that the second something doesn't go well, because then people, it, it just won't work. 
I mean, in your opinion, I'm putting you on the spot here a little bit, but, you know, there was all this question of did Dominic Cummings trip to Durham, you know, cause a rise? And it, I mean, is it is it quite obvious to you that it must have done? It must have lost trust, uh, it, you know, in terms of uh, how people saw the government. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there I think there actually have been a couple empirical studies that have come out already that have sort of demonstrated in one way or another that that did have a quantifiable change on people's sort of attitudes and actions after that happened. But just I mean, just from a comment as a behavioral scientist who studies sort of trust and, and perceptions of authenticity and hypocrisy, if, if I could have sort of described to you what the worst possible thing someone in the government could have done in that moment <laughs> in time. That that would have been it. If I wanted people not to follow the government advice, I, I would have counseled them to do exactly what Dominic Cummings did. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, I mean, one of the I was reading your article on um, about diversity in the workplace and uh, about how important it is to practice what you preach. And I, I feel like this is something that comes up in so many areas of society. We've just been talking about it in the government, but obviously also in that case, it was during the Black Lives Matter, all these workplaces that said, we support Black Lives Matter. And then you check and none of their CEOs are, uh, I mean, well, just anything other than translucent white. And, um, you know, but do, do people notice this? Because, I, you know, I feel in the, in the world of big advertisement and big sort of three word slogans, can people see past that to to the hypocrisy? Like, do we do we spot it easily? Um, and, 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 you know, why are some people sort of impervious to these contradictions? Yeah, I mean, people are pretty attuned to hypocrisy. You know, in my research, I do a lot of research on those sort of social justice issues and, and, and hypocritical institutions and organizations. People do pick up on it, you know, quite a lot of the time. But when I share this with with organizations and leaders, I'm sort of dismayed some of the time because their their reaction is often, okay, well, well, how can we then present this so they won't pick up on our hypocrisy? Rather than how do we, you know, how do <laughs> oh, we not no. how do we not be hypocritical? They're, they're sort of asking me, well, how do I need to say this? Which obviously isn't the point of, of my research, but. I guess they've taken the wrong message from that. I, I guess it comes down to this classic sort of uh, why people don't pick up on it sometimes has a lot to do with with cognitive dissonance. If you've heard of this sort of classic psychological thing before, um, people really kind of want to have consistency in their beliefs. And if something, you know, comes up in the world that doesn't mesh with what they currently believe, they, they sort of will subconsciously in some instances kind of go out of their way to not believe or not incorporate that. And I know this sounds silly. We all, we all think of ourselves as like smart, rational, you know, highly functioning people. We, we have this vision of the brain as this like massive supercomputer, you know, processing everything. But in reality, we're not really all that well equipped to handle the avalanche of information that comes in on a daily basis. So our brains sort of take these shortcuts to keep things simple and straightforward whenever they can that's really fascinating i i I do sort of always feel that you know uh for example just even talking about the the diversity issue to to research who's on the board of ceos takes a lot more effort than to look at a tweet that says hey we support this movement and so you know not not everyone has that sort of time but i guess if you've got no intention of digging any deeper then you just take things at face value so, I mean, somebody somebody did the put the effort in. They looked at every organization that changed their Twitter icon to a rainbow flag for uh, Pride Month last year, and then they went into each one of those organizations' uh, yearly annual reports 
and check to see if they mentioned anything about LGBT plus or, you know, any sort of programs to support LGBT plus communities. And as you can imagine, it was, you know, of the 90 who did the rainbow flags only, I can't remember the exact number, 15, 16 had mentioned or done anything for those communities in their actual business. So it's just in every facet, it's sort of rife with, with hypocrisy in the, the corporate settings. That is, wow, that's appalling. And I mean, it, you know, uh, the, you sort of say the amount of information that we've got at the moment, is that a factor to it as well? Because we're being given in, you know, the news is 24 hours. There is always brand new things coming in. There's always, everyone's posting links and articles to everything. Is 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 there an element of that that makes people switch off and just think, oh, I'll just just believe what I believe, or, <laughs> you know, or just get on with things? Yeah, I, it, I, I, I defer to like evolutionary psychology a little bit for that, which is a tough field because it's difficult to like empirically quantifiably demonstrating, demonstrate something that's happened over tens of thousands of years. But my inclination is that it's sort of a, a pretty safe assertion to say the way our minds are evolved is not very efficient in dealing with the the internet age we just there's there's too much information coming in from too many different sources and we get that cognitive dissonance just sort of to help us deal with the the information overload that's presented with us in 2020 and is that part of the reason why we're sort of seeing a rise in conspiracy theorists because i mean one of the things that's been really concerning me lately and probably because i read too much about that specific subject but you know the in the states there's the QAnon thing that's kind of uh rising yeah. and here we're having this uh pandemic conspiracy marches um is that like part of the cognitive dissonance that they just want to believe in something else is it a need for kind of escapism in these times what's the um or is it just like kind of adverse reactions being told what to do what what kind of causes people to seek truth elsewhere yeah there, i mean there's a lot of good research going on on, on the conspiracy theories because obviously it does seem like they're having an outsized effect right now and, and i'm not sure there's a simple answer to why that's happening at least yet I mean, if I knew it, I'd be out, you know, screaming at the QAnon supporters to, to get them to, to stop whatever they're doing because it's ridiculous. But my, uh, yeah, my hunch is that, yeah, it does kind of come down to that cognitive dissonance and, and just the general information overload of our time. So, you know, back just a hundred years ago, you know, which is nothing in evolutionary terms, people's sole source of information might have been the newspaper or, you know, what they the conversations they had at the pub in their neighborhood, that would have been sort of their sole amount of political and and societal information they needed to process. Obviously in an incredibly short period of time that has flipped on its head as an understatement. We were bombarded with information from everywhere constantly now. And yeah, I think it's to an extent that that we're just not all that well uh, built to, to deal with that. And as you say, People try and make sense. They try and make a complicated world simpler. Having to sort of, you know, going back through history and understanding the the divisions between Republicans and Democrats and, and you know, why they're Tories and, and labor and all that thing. That's long, difficult, cognitively taxing work to do that. It's much easier if you can just create a really straightforward conspiracy theory that explains everything as a satanic uh, uh, pedophile cult. That's pretty quick i'm done so you can see why people <laughs> in the in this age where we have so much information are, are making those sorts of steps to to simplify things 
Yeah, which I mean, you say it's still for me as uh, I was reading one the other day that there are children in tunnels under London or something. And I was thinking, actually, that's more complicated than some of the stuff that the government just are doing. You know, (laughs) it seems like that would take more effort and more planning to organise these things than just, hey, giving a company to your friend or whatever. It's, you know, it's. (laughs) I mean, do you have like, do you have like normal friends who you're shocked when they like say they believe these sort of stuff? Like, I've been having more and more conversations with people I feel like I thought were regular. And like just normal people. And then they're, oh by, oh, by the way, you know, what do you think about the pedophile call? I'm sorry, what? Like, where did that come from? I feel like it's really, it's, it's getting deep into, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's frustrating, I guess. And I, I don't have any, any clear answers. I don't know that there's a, a clear, you know, scientific approach to, to fixing this yet. But it is frustrating how widely believed some of these um, conspiracy theories are becoming. Yeah, and, and I guess some of it must come back to also the lack of trust that we're discussing in, you know, if, if if institutions like the government are giving mixed messages about do this, oh, no, don't do this, oh, it's your fault that you didn't do this, then that's got to, do, do people need to put their trust elsewhere? Yeah, and, I, and I, again, it probably comes down to how direct the communication is because, uh, you know, governments and polit- politicians have always lied, right? That's That's not a new thing in 2020. But again, up until fairly recently, there wasn't necessarily, you know, there wasn't Twitter, you know, politicians, there wasn't this constant direct communication and and messaging from the government directly to the people. It was previously more sort of mediated by uh, the traditional information sources and the media and stuff. So I guess that probably plays a part of it now that there's that direct communication and sort of more manipulation. People, again, are trying to find ways to make everything fit together in a, in a simpler way of understanding the world. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I will be back with Andrew in a minute, but first... At the moment, all the news is one note. Coronavirus or Brexit? Okay, okay, that's two notes. But they sound the same, you know, like a sort of B flat, because that's how they make everyone feel. 
Thing is, there are actually other politics going on, and quite a few of them are also very shit. As one of those people who currently likes to derail any hopeful conversations people are having in real life with a yeah, but it's unlikely because everyone in charge is the worst person possible comment, I thought it'd help liven up your chats, sorry, deaden up, so you two can puncture any bubbles of optimism that people may have. I should say I'm not being a total glum pants, and in fact today my pants are a lovely shade of blue. Ah, which makes them sound depressed, doesn't it? I meant they were colourful. Oh god, I didn't mean to talk about my pants so much. I just meant I am hopeful that there are good people out there. It's just that absolutely none of them happen to be in government by now, and idiots gave them a massive majority so they can do what they like until probably 2024, unless they destroy themselves through their own arrogance and stupidity. So, till then, keep tabs on this shit, and that way we'll remember what to fix once we've worked out how to trap them all in a well. So, here's a quick list of shit things the Conservatives have done in recent weeks to jaunty music so it feels less sad. The rent eviction ban was brought in back in March during coronavirus legislation, meaning that landlords whose tenants couldn't pay rent because they'd lost all work thanks to the Covid and the government weren't supporting them couldn't be kicked out till the end of September. You know, just in time for winter, because Conservatives don't enjoy homelessness unless the people experiencing it are having the worst time possible. It's just not as fun for them to burn £50 notes in front of people actually comfortable lying down in the park. Housing Minister and past its sell-by-date meatloaf Robert Jenrick promised back in March that no renter who lost income due to coronavirus would be forced out of their home. But then a vote to stop evictions happening after this month was defeated in the Lords because Conservatives voted against it and Labour abstained. Ah, there's nothing like a strong opposition who just sit back, watch, don't oppose anything and hope they can still charge extortionate rents for all the homes they own. So that's 55,000 private renters who are very likely in trouble. The government have said there is still a ban in place for evicting people in areas of local lockdown, so judging by how things are going, everyone should still be fine until next March. A housing minister said that they have to strike a balance so that landlords are able to access justice alongside measures to protect the vulnerable, as it's vital to the health of the long-term rent sector. Trust the Conservatives to care about the health of something that's not actually alive and is the one thing we all hoped coronavirus might kill off. The ban on evictions of commercial property tenants have been extended, though, until the end of the year, meaning that shop owners will only get turfed out just as Brexit hits, and they can't get any produce anyway, so hey, makes sense. Clap, clap, clap for the NHS, the government insisted, hoping the clapping might shoo many of its staff away like you might some geese. As their plans were foiled and people just appreciated the NHS even more, the government have instead been very quietly making things worse for international staff. The charge for people from abroad to use the NHS has gone up by £224, from 400 to 624 because you know it's more expensive than before, now you might go away with a goodie bag full of Covid. Back in May, the government said they'd remove the surcharge for NHS workers, but as none of them really understand how the NHS works, they only did it for doctors, nurses and paramedics, and not for the majority of care workers, probably because their name contains two things Boris Johnson doesn't understand. Parking fees have also started to return at most hospitals, with government ministers saying that the free parking couldn't continue indefinitely. Which, yes, we all know. How many times do we have to say this? One day the sun will explode and cars won't exist. But you could at least have tried to do it through the rest of a pandemic rather than just a sort of introductory offer. Otherwise everyone will just wish they'd gone to ICU back in March. The Department of Education have updated the school curriculum for PSHE lessons, so materials that promote anti-capitalist sentiments, victim narratives such as colonial regret, accusations against state institutions such as institutional racism, or groups that have violence against property such as Black Lives Matter or Banksy all by him or herself are all banned. 
Basically, they don't want teachers teaching the kids anything about how massively shit the government are or how to point it out to them, which is not only scary authoritarian stuff, but it also means kids are going to miss out on some brilliant, brilliant fiction. Again, I mentioned it in the beginning, PSHE isn't necessarily about books, but if you think about it, for example, Pippi Longstocking humiliates the police. Is she now considered a terrorist by school standards? Or Horton Hears a Who, which presents the very socialist idea of a person is a person no matter how small? Or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, where the spoilt children have the horrible outcomes? Or Winnie the Pooh, where there's a blonde bear who doesn't wear any trousers and does stupid things? I mean, nearly all children's books promote some notion of responsibility and how lying is bad, so I'm just really not sure the government have thought this through. Unless all children aged four and up are only to read Johnson's book on Churchill every year, which just seems really cruel. The guidance also gives example of what it calls are extreme political stances, which include any opposition to the right of freedom of speech, and that hopefully means teachers can disregard all the rest of it about what materials are banned. There's also a very scary bit that describes an extreme political stance as being a failure to condemn illegal activities done in their name or in support of their cause. I mean, that's definitely, if you read into that, that's definitely the government expecting Muslim children to have to condemn terrorists who claim they're acting in the name of Islam, which is not something kids of any age should be remotely concerned about or be made to be responsible for, especially from a government who, if it was them, would just somehow blame it all on young people. On the plus side, children can use the internet, and it turns out there are some other opinions on there, so hopefully they'll all be fine. Major reforms to the Gender Recognition Act have been scrapped after a three-year delay, as bubble wrap and Minister for Women and Equalities, Liz Truss, said that, oh, it turns out everything the original one was great, thanks, and it doesn't need any changes to make things easier for people to make changes. Which is a bit rich coming from someone who's changed their mind throughout the Brexit transition period and expected everyone else to make it easy and suck up the costs. The plans were to revise the law so that the process for transgender people to legally change their gender would not be so convoluted, but Truss decided it was actually the right amount of convoluted and at the most has reduced the cost of getting a gender recognition certificate and you can now do it online. Three new gender clinics will be open to reduce the three-year waiting time to see a specialist, but none of it has really made anything easier or that much quicker. That is classic Liz Truss, though, taking ages to make something pretty much as it was before or worse and pretending she's done something amazing. I'm surprised that she didn't add in discounts for blue cheese that absolutely no one asked for. Up to 40 Conservative MPs are refusing to take part in unconscious bias classes, presumably because they're very conscious of all of theirs and they really, really enjoy them. The classes were to be piloted in Parliament and were pioneered by Simon Woolley, a crossbench peer who founded Operation Blackvote. But MP and what if ant fuck debt Ben Bradley said Tories should be unabashed in their cultural conservatism, sticking up for free speech and the right to make my own bloody mind up, thank you very much, because he's a complete twat. Keir Starmer has made it mandatory for Labour MPs to do the very brief training and then they probably won't ever think about it again and go back to trying to sell racist mugs. Conservatives have all either undertaken or made arrangements to do a valuing everyone training session which focuses on bullying, harassment and sexual misconduct, though my concern is they all went thinking they'd learn how to do those things far more effectively. So, there's just some quick shit things. Remember, you can write to your MP even if they don't reply or they just send you something rubbish back. It's still very worth doing it again and again and again like a small voice of conscience on their shoulder so that they have at least one somewhere rattling around their head. Ben Bradley said he received 150 emails of support about him not doing unconscious bias training and absolutely none against. So, I mean, if you live in his constituency of Mansfield, quickly top up a few fake emails and send him a ton telling him how you're very consciously biased against him as he seems like the worst of all humankind. And now, back to Andrew.
Wow. It's, I never thought, you know, it would actually be the case that we need to hear from them less. I mean, I'd, that's my dream. I'd love to hear from politicians less. I feel it would definitely right. make the world a better place. Um, and and it's, you sort of mentioned there before about how the, like just, you know, simple divides between kind of Republicans and Democrats are aged and, and uh, you know, and complicated. But we are... I don't know, politics feels more tribal than it's ever been. And particularly, um, you know, in the US right now, this US election that's upcoming looks really, I mean, it's terrifying. It just feels, I mean, I'm looking at it from mainly online, so I'm seeing the kind of amplified voices yeah. of social media, but it seems very vitriolic um, from both sides. And can you see that changing? I mean, you know, there's this notion that obviously if Trump goes and Biden comes in that maybe everything will be fixed but would would that be enough do you think America's kind of divided beyond that now yeah I mean I I, I feel like I have a tough time having immigrated to the the UK a little while ago I've got sort of two outrageous governments to to deal with in my head I still <laughs> with ridiculously haired leaders yes yeah. right yeah somehow I've got double the the angst and 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 horrible things happening in my political life so that's that's fun I feel like I should give up one I should pick one stick with it and just yeah. try and ignore the other one for my sanity um but I would with, with tribalism I I don't there's a there's a kind of a new obsession with that in, in psychology and and pop culture I don't really like it. I, I think it's, there's always been group identities in conflict, you know, between groups. This isn't a new thing. This isn't some new discovery. You know, this has been a, been a social psychology sort of, sort of thing forever. Um, I, I think, I mean, what we're seeing is this in the pol- political sphere, at least is this rise in, in white nationalism um, with sort of an authoritarian and, and bent to it. I, I'm making a point while I'm being recorded, not to use uh, the word fascist to describe anyone, but we're getting there. And I think the, the increased polarization isn't so much due to some, you know, that we're becoming more tribal inherently. I, I think it's due to this new focus on white identity politics. It's not conservative versus liberal anymore. You know, it's not the traditional divides. It's, it's a new playing field. It's a new divide. In the U.S., you have sort of white Christians versus everyone else. Uh, where in, in the UK, as far as I understand, it seems to be more about, you know, native born, you know, people in the UK versus immigrants are sort of these new groups that the politicians have sort of changed the focus to. And I think, you know, those groups that are sort of changing that focus are, are so desperate to hold on to the power that they have in society, not just in government, but in society. There's been so much talk about sort of systematic and structural uh, racism over the past few months here, which is fantastic. But that really goes to the heart of the issue is that these groups, whether it's, you know, the sort of basically white people, white, white men, white Christians in the U.S., the power they have in society, they are desperate to hold on to that power, not just political power, but societal power. And I think it's this new sort of uh, um, surge of these ethno-nationalist sort of leaders that have sort of moved the goalpost. I don't think it's that people are becoming inherently more tribal. It's that one of the tribes has become more awful, for lack of a better word. Where does that come in in terms of the sort of fairness thing? Because, you know, for a lot of these, you know, in my head, equality means suddenly everything's fair for everyone. But to these people, it would mean that they lose the sort of power that they have. And does that then... Are their goalposts now that fairness means they have more power over someone else? That's, I mean, that's one of the, the leaps that I find very hard to make in my head of how you, you'd find it unfair to have more fairness. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it all comes back to, you know, I'm not going to do the intro to psych lecture on, on your podcast. So, you know, for the benefit of your listeners, but it all comes back to this idea of like social identity. And there's this big theory, social identity theory and the, the sort of classic psychology literature. People, we, we all belong to lots of different groups, right? I'm, I'm a man, I'm American, I'm an expat, I'm an Aston Villa fan, uh, brown hair, all these different things are the groups that make up me. And, and in different contexts, different uh, d- different ones of those groups are sort of the most salient in my life. So because of how these politicians have sort of framed things for many people being, let's say in America, being a white Christian is sort of their central group identity. It's become essential for them. A- and with this theory, it goes that people sort of draw their, their feelings of self-worth and their self-esteem from those identities. Now, on the one hand, you could you could talk positively about your identity, you know, being Americans are great. And that makes me feel bad about myself if I sort of pitch that Americans are great. But the flip side to that, I can also accomplish the same thing by putting down the comparison groups. So I can say Americans are great, or I can say British people are lame. Either way, I've improved how I feel about myself. Now, obviously, a lot of this happens subconsciously. People aren't sort of consciously processing through this this sort of this this psychological process. But I think that explains a lot of it. And because we've increased the salience of these sort of new ethno, you know, ethnic or nationalist groups, that's created a lot of what people are calling, you know, tribalism these days. Right. So it's, it's more complex than tribalism really. And it's sort of more power based. Yeah. I, 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 honestly, it's, it's, there's a lot of researchers that are really focusing on, on tribalism as, as sort of an idea in, in psychology research, not just in the media. And I, I just think I don't, there hasn't been some big change in this. Like people aren't suddenly more inclined to be tribal, you know, this year than they were 10 years ago. It has more to do with what the groups themselves are than any sort of change in the human psyche. That's fascinating. And, and, and I mean, it's, it's part of it as well, you know, because you sort of, as you say, there's various things that help you identify yourself and who you are, but that's becoming a more and more blurred concept in 2020, just of how people identify in general. And also the the kind of groups that we're part of. I mean, e- even more so now in a pandemic where we're all working from home, we no longer even have an office that we go to, you know, kids weren't at school, like um, everyone likes every type of music or hates, you know, and I don't know, I, I sort of feel like when I was growing up, I was, I was born in the 80s and there were punks and there were, you know, and there, were, uh, there were kind of goths and there were, you know, romantics and uh, hip hop kind of fans. And it was like really obvious, almost... Um, kind of uh stylist groups or cultural groups and i don't really see that in any in the same way at all anymore and do, do you think that we have we changed the way that we see ourselves in in groups or in communities yeah i mean yeah there's those classic like 80s high school movies where there were the jocks and the the goths <laughs> and the, the the punks or whatever that made the world seem so simple right um i, I it's a big question you know, it's tough. It's tough to say if that's fundamentally changed in any way. There's, you know, our, our in groups, these these groups that sort of define our identity are always in flux. You know, depending on the context, depending on the situation. You know, in in World War II, national identity was incredibly salient. You know, during the miners' strikes up here in the Northeast, class identity was the primary thing for a lot of people. 
Um, you can think of millions of other examples. So th these things are in flux. These things can change very rapidly. Um, has there been some fundamental change in how people identify? I, I'm still not so convinced. Obviously, yeah, it's a tough question to answer. I, I'm not sure if anything has really permanently or fundamentally changed in how people you know, perceive which groups they identify with. It's it's something that can change, you know, depending on the context, depending on the time. Obviously, I mean, there's no two ways around it. This is one of the most unique and incredible times in, you know, certainly modern history with with everything that's going on. Even putting the pandemic aside, the the politics of now are are truly unique and interesting, and the pandemic's a whole other wrinkle. So, yeah, my answer would be I, I'm not so convinced that people have fundamentally changed how they identify uh, with groups. I think it may have more to do with the context in this specific moment, and it, it's probably something we can get back to when things maybe seemed a little bit simpler. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, and I'm going to uh, speak with some pretend expertise that I don't have any of, uh, unlike yourself. But, that's, you know, one of the things. That's the best kind. <laughs> well, here's my entire career is based on it. But it, it's one of the things, you know, being a, a comedian, when we had big audiences, it honestly, you'd get audiences of complete mixes of of people in, in every way. And they would all laugh together or you'd find ways to bring them all together and you'd be able to joke about little things that may be divisive, say online, but in a room, you have a collective kind of unity. And so part of me just wondered if, if particularly in the pandemic where we're all at home by ourselves, you, you do lose that and you lose a sense of how other people feel and maybe you just lose a sense of bonding to other people through it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Um, and I think that that probably has something to do with why a bunch of nations have been so keen to get sports back. You know, it sounds like a silly thing, but I, I think that absolutely has something to do with it. Just giving, you know, there's so many people in this country that are, that are passionate about football um, and just giving them something to sort of rally behind and support to, to get them away. So basically it's just changing which, which group identity is salient. If you can make being a, a Newcastle fan, back to being a, a very salient, you know, gr uh, uh, group in group for a lot of people, it will make that see that sort of the focus of their identity less so than all this political division. So I do think, you know, I'm sure everyone wants to make money as well, but I, I do think there's a bit of a, uh, a bit of sort of psychology going into the decision to make sure the sports have gotten back to being played. So, so would one solution, if, if we were to stop white nationalism, we should create a lot of really like, uh, I don't know, sort of uh, wanted fan clubs for people to join. If you should make some really attractive fan clubs, we'll get them in different groups. That might be a way to break it up. Yeah, perhaps. Although the uh, football <laughs> fan clubs in uh, what Italy and uh, Russia and stuff are, are the hotbed for white nationalism. So it's a yeah. tricky... Uh, maybe a not, tricky... but we need something a bit, uh, maybe like, a, I don't know, we, we need something a bit, a bit uh, touch rugby or something. We need something that's a bit calmer, don't, rounders. That's it. We'll yes. have some rounders fan clubs. So we'll, uh, nobody we nobody is offended by rounders. So that, that's, probably <laughs> the, that's probably the right that's answer. That's it. It would happen. You'd watch. It would. Ha I'd give it about a year and suddenly it'd become the most violent sport on earth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, what, one last question for you, Andrew. Actually, nearly one last question. Just one quick thing, which is, is simply that, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm springing this on you because I, 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 uh, I haven't, I, I didn't say that I'd ask you about this. But one of the things that I was reading was this, you know, uh, how to kind of approach people with other opinions and how to stop divisiveness is just to have a meal with people and obviously, and, you know, and talk to them about it. And obviously, we can't because the pandemic <laughs> means you can't even do that. Is there anything else that that? you know, we should be doing or that in your study show helps communicate, you know, it helps communication happen a bit easier. 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's a ton of research about just contact. Like as as you said, it actually is pretty well supported that just having contact and interaction with people who are different from you uh, makes you get on better with those people. Um, something that uh, uh, a few folks at Durham, uh, the the head of the department at Durham, uh, Professor Crisp, has looked at is this idea of. Um, sort of countering stereotypes in people. So presenting people in situations that wouldn't be typical, uh, you know, a male nurse, uh, a female pilot, things like that. So by, by kind of putting people in situations that aren't the stereotype, it can help kind of overcome some of those stereotypes in people's minds. That's really helpful. But yeah, I, I guess it's, it's gotta be, I'm not the expert on sort of breaking down the, the interaction between people, but I guess it's just sort of getting together and, and trying to focus on other things, not, you know, if you have a conversation from someone with a, a different political bent than you, don't focus the conversation on politics. It's, it's pretty common sense stuff, but try and find the things that, that unite you, that you sort of these identities that you share in common, have the discussions around those things, and then hopefully that'll make it easier when the more divisive issues come up. That's a good plan. See, these Zoom quizzes do have a purpose. That's for the- <laughs> everyone hates I, them. I can't. I can't do another one of those. That a <laughs> no, one. neither can I. Neither can I. <laughs> I can't. We can't save the world through Zoom quizzes. Definitely not. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. And and yeah, the actual last question, which is the one that I ask all our guests, just with the, the hope of furthering information for people to to find, which is um, simply that apart from yourself and, and your department at Durham, um, what other writers, academics, websites would you recommend that listeners check out? Um, in terms of behavioral sciences or current social issues, like who are your, you know, handful of go-to people or places? Yeah, that's a good. It's a good question. Um, I would say, so, socially, from a cultural perspective, I don't, I don't know how familiar people in the UK are with his writing, but Tana Hesse Coates, an essayist in the in the US, is probably my favorite sort of I don't know writer and, and commentator on on social issues. So I really recommend checking out some of his. Uh, uh, articles and books. And then if you're on Twitter, I know uh, professors Stephen Riker and Susan uh, Mickey are are two really good behavioral scientists. I think they're both on the uh, SAGE advisory group, um, but just have really active, really informative Twitter accounts if you're interested in keeping up with some of this stuff from a behavioral science perspective. Thanks very much to Andrew. You can find him on Twitter at Andrew underscore M-A-R-C-I-N-K-O and his team at the Department of Psychology at Durham University are at Durham Psych. Shout out to Jack at Psycho. Hello, Jack, for putting me in touch with Andrew too. I've never read uh, Jack's Twitter handle out loud. I'll just do it first time. Uh, his name is Jack Hughes. He used to run the Totally Unprepared Politics podcast. He's a very good man. Uh, but his Twitter handle is Psycho Low Jack. Uh, so do uh, follow him as well. Thank you, Jack. Okay, so on future episodes, I'd love to interview someone about the idea of cancel culture and there being some sort of culture war. Um, as I don't know who to talk to about that. Um, I still need a US politics expert as the one I was hoping to. So they're busy. Uh, dealing with all of the shit um so any thoughts on who i could speak to for those things and any other things i haven't covered or need to cover again in these extraordinary times then please do let me know i'm also very keen to get more non-white guests on uh, if possible too uh because look, i'm very aware the diversity ratio of this show of late is so bad that lawrence fox would almost approve of it which we just can't have so uh you can do any of those things at parpol bro on twitter the partly political broadcast group on facebook the contact page on partly political broadcast.co.uk uh that it seems i only ever get 
spam emails from about my SEO content or something, which clearly isn't working as it just attracts spam emails. So maybe I do need to change it. Um, or you can email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or if you're a student currently imprisoned in your dorms, then why not pop the suggestion on your window along with your sign saying help? And I will actually notice them on social media, but never get round to uh, contacting the people you suggest as I'm too busy drawing up blueprints of just how to get you all out based on prison break, which will ultimately fail. As always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. And this, of course, is the end of the episode. And so for this week's incredible Parpol Bro Hot Pole Gus Fact, uh, what with various uh, just all quite right-wing terrible new parties being announced this week, and I wondered which was or is the most useless British political party that's ever existed. And obviously, it'd be very easy to name whichever of the main ones you don't like, but hey, without the Conservatives, this show would just be me finding different electrical appliances to describe Keir Starmer as, which would get very boring after a while. And without Labour, we'd have no idea that people could exist without ever having any opinions about anything. And without the Lib Dems, we... Nope. No, sorry, I can't think of one. But aside from them... Could it be the No Candidate Deserves My Vote Party, set up to highlight the need for a none of the above option on the ballot paper, but ultimately the name just meant they never won any elections over the 11 years they were a party till 2012? No, nor is it the Abolish the Welsh Assembly Party, who are a single-issue group who want to, yes, you've guessed it, abolish the Welsh Assembly, saying it's a waste of money. How best to point that out? They're spending money to run for a seat in the 2021 Welsh Assembly elections. Uh, It must be exhausting being them. No, of course, the most useless political group ever was the Independent Group for Change, formerly Change UK, formerly the Independent Group. Yes, as you can tell, the only thing they managed to change in the 10 months they existed was their name, their handful of members of former parties before they all ran off to join the Lib Dems, everyone's formerly favourable opinion of Nando's, and Chukram and his personal tick list of being in as many parties as possible before 2019 was over. With just 10,006 votes in the last general election, not enough to even register as a percentage of the vote on Wikipedia's page about it, they became yet another party who spent a lot of money on ensuring job losses. Just this time, it was mostly their own. That's this week's Pop Holbro Hot Bogos Fact. And if you enjoyed that and the rest of this week's show, please do spread the good word, for that word is pod to all that you know. If you hated it, please protest avidly against it, but you know with a big placard that has all the correct places to download and listen to it from right on the front. Thanks. Big letters, do it in really big letters. If you also fancy donating to the show, or you know, just making sure I don't have to record it from within a sleeping bag in the park, then please do do that at ko-fi.com forward slash bro, the patreon.com forward slash bro, or on the ACAST support page. And of course, if you really want to go all out, uh, chuck us a nice five-star review on the Apple Podcast page, or ACAST, or Stitcher, or CastBox, or wherever you get your pods from. Big thanking times to ACAST, my brother last sceptic, Cat Day, Scott Napier, and Katie Coxall. And this will be back next week when the COVID levels rise again. Boris Johnson tells the country we all have to work together from a holiday home in the Maldives, while Rishi Sunak announces that he can't save all the jobs, but it's only right he supports all the workers who are the Chancellor of the Exchequer with a 5% pay rise. Bye! I said certified Chancellor, only five days a week. Winter economy plan, that makes Christmas look bleak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm fucking you with a winter economy plan. Bring a bucket and a mop, as it's the only jobs we got. I'm giving absolutely nothing that we got for this winter economy plan. Financially beat you up, everything's extra charge. Extra stingy, life will be extra hard. Rub our double standards in your face, swipe your nose with my credit card. Huh?